And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, January 16th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, will that new defense industrial strategy actually produce results? Plus, now a big national laboratory has gone all in on artificial intelligence. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Army's biggest IT modernization priority is simplifying its networks. Just 18 months ago, the service had 42 count-em networks. That's now down to 14, and the goal is to collapse those down to a single unified network. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis got more from NETCOM's commander, Major General Chris Eubank. I think it's ambitious, but I think it's possible. I absolutely think it's the right thing to do, and, and actually, I think it makes us a more capable workforce or army. So I'll say that up front, the process. So it starts with what we call discovery. So finding out you actually have your own network. We come to visit you. We sit down. We have a conversation. Hey, how big is it? What's it do? That's called discovery. And then from there, we start a round of meetings and figure out what it's going to take to move you onto our network. So as we collapse an organizational network, all we do is take those users and put you in the bigger army network. And so it's not like you don't, you walk away and don't have a network or services. We just put you in the bigger army network. And so that's kind of how the process works, all driven by senior leaders in the army saying, hey, we need to move to a unified network. They wrote an order probably about two years ago now that saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. And oh, by the way, our cyber and netcom are going to be the lead organization for this. And so over the last two years, two and a half years, we've been talking with every every organization in the Army and asking them, hey, do you run your own network? No. Okay, so you're using our services. Okay, good. Yes, we have our own network. Okay, what's it consist of? How many people? How many users? And then we slowly but surely migrate you to the bigger Army network, and then you get out of that business, right? And you become a customer, and then you get to hold NETCOM and our cyber, Army Cyber Command, accountable for delivering IT services to you. And what is it going to take in terms of the timeline and resources, everything to collapse it? Yeah, so our goal is to have a unified network by about 2027. So if you look in fiscal years, we're probably about three years out. At least that's our goal. But every time we sit down with a, a partner, we learn something new about a network and we go, okay, now it's going to take a little bit longer or, hey, look at this. We can actually speed up here. So, But the goal is over the next three years is to collapse the last 14. I think the, uh, the Army's put the resources in place to do this. And so it's just, it's now it's, it's about time. And what are some of the priorities for 2024 when it comes to the effort? So right now, our priorities for Ordnet Convergence are still focused on the Army National Guard and the Army Reserves. And then Army Material Command, we have some networks there we need to, to finish up. And then we just started discussions with the Corps of Engineers, the Army Corps of Engineers. So those would be the big big four the, the, next, the next year. And so we are continuing to push on this effort. There's an entire team inside NETCOM that meets with these partner organizations to make sure we understand their environment and we do it 
right. What we don't want to do is converge you and then figure out we've broken a bunch of stuff. And so, and, and with people like Army Material Command, the Corps of Engineers, they have a lot of unique things. And so we just got to make sure we don't break those things as we converge the networks. You mentioned the pilot. Could you elaborate on it and talk more about what challenges you're working through? Yeah, so what we're doing is, in partnership with the 7th Infantry Division at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, we've gone out there and and had some meetings, and in February we're going to go out as part of their exercise. And, And the goal is, so right now in the Army, when you go to the field, you deploy, you have a... It's another organizational network. It's an entire separate network that we call the tactical network. And so kind of managed by the, the tactical organization, so managed by the 7th Infantry Division, separate from the greater Army network. And so what we're doing with them is we're nipper and sipper. We're looking at their environments and determining how we put them in what we'll call enterprise Army space and then see if see if they can still get to all the data they need to and all the resources they need to. And if they can, we'll be able to go back to Army senior leaders and say, that's just another organizational network that we don't need in the Army. So it's going to be interesting in February when we test this out. So that's the, the goal is to prove that that network, that organizational network, like other organizational networks, can be collapsed into the greater Army network. That's the whole goal there. Why is that important about the organizational collapse? So this is about getting to the Army Unified Network. So there's a whole group of things that make it really important. So by having one unified network, you argue that there's less attack surface. Although it's big, you have less places that the adversary can attack you. It One will argue that it makes collaboration more seamless and effective. And so... The goal is everybody is on the same network. There's one organization delivering those services to the Army in general, and the tactical network is a part of that. So it's about getting to that unified network for the Army. How big is it? How many Uh, people are testing this out? Yeah, so the current test from a tactical network perspective is just the 7th Infantry Division, and we we are working with their G6 to get a sampling of systems from the division headquarters as well as some subordinate organizations like a brigade or battalion so that we have a good mix from kind of down at the battalion level all the way to the division headquarters. And so I don't have specific numbers on that. We are still working through what that looks like. And we're really letting the 7th Infantry Division drive that versus us saying, hey, give us 42 users. It's, hey, tell us the systems that you think are best for this pilot in this test. And so that, that's why the partnership is essential with the 7th Infantry, Infantry Division. And I just wanted to follow up on something you were talking about, you know, using Max, and you're testing that out. You're talking about a playbook. Do you have a timeline on that playbook? Our goal is to deliver that playbook within the next year. And so the our customers will tell you the faster the better. A lot of people want, to, want the ability to use Apple products on the network in a secure manner. So most of our customers will tell us to move a little bit faster but the goal is to deliver that playbook over the next year what would be the timeline for service members actually if they want to use a mac they could again nobody's shown up yet and said hey we want to convert our entire environment to uh to apple we've had some onesies and twosies actually reach out and now i have to go back into senior leaders in the army and ask them 
if we're cleared to kind of bring ones and twos onto the network based on what we know. But we're still working through some what I'll call bugs. This is the first time we've done it. And so if you're an Apple user at home, you'll be okay. If you're not and you just want to try it out, it's going to be interesting. And so we hope in the next, even even without a, a finalized playbook, we hope in the next six months we can actually tell people they can start bringing Apple products in and, and we'll get them connected. Thank you. Thank you. Army NETCOM Commander Major General Chris Eubank speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, now a big national laboratory has gone all in on artificial intelligence. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Artificial intelligence has grown too big for anyone to ignore. Now the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory has established a Center for Artificial Intelligence. Here with what it will do, the lab's chief scientist for artificial intelligence, Court Corley. Dr. Corley, good to have you with us. Thanks. I'm very glad to be here and share with you more about the Center for AI at PNNL. And we didn't mean to imply that you've been ignoring it until now and just getting into it, but a special center for it. Tell us why that's happening now. Sure. The Department of Energy's national laboratories you know, are a crown jewel of science and technology development for the United States and have been for quite some time. At PNNL, we're a Department of Energy Office of Science stewarded laboratory, which means that we have been developing analytics and science and service of the nation for quite some time, decades in fact. You know, what's different today is that as we're seeing all throughout business and industry and government, that AI is really having a significant impact across the range of missions that we have. You know, at the laboratory, we have missions in scientific discovery, energy sustainability, and national security. And just by fact of the size of our organization, there are you know, roughly 6,000 staff. About two-thirds of those are scientists or engineers just in our own laboratory, which is you know, one of many national laboratories in the nation. Because of how we're organized, we have pockets of AI research, AI application, scientific discovery, AI engineering, and all the things in between that are really doing incredible work. But what we need to do now and why we created the center is really to help us aggregate that collective experience, be able to drive impact, elevate priorities, and really go after some really global challenges that are facing us. So then the center is a way to make sure that there is no duplication of effort, or will you actually do artificial intelligence research within the center itself? So we'll do a couple different things. Absolutely, we will be driving AI research and really pursuing the areas that are going to help us advance AI and our science, energy, and security missions. And that's going to be really exciting. In addition, we're going to be applying AI in all the different areas that we're working in, you know, specifically things like controlling the power grid. So, you know, right now, our power generation and distribution is very intermittent. And the methods that are used today work. It's amazing that our, our grid is up. But for the future, and with the increase of clean energy, new energy resources coming online, we need additional methods to really help us be able to manage that effectively for our nation. So that's like one example of the types of things that we've been working on. 
So it's, it's both. It's driving research and it's the application. Yeah, you want to make sure everyone's not doing the same thing in six different places and then you Absolutely. waste effort. Yeah. And just a detailed question on the grid because that is in private hands and there sure. are you know, quasi-regulatory bodies that make sure the grid is managed you know, in a way that one region can communicate with the other. These are reliability councils and so forth. What is going on with respect to AI? Where can AI, so far as we know now, help in right. grid reliability and distribution of electricity and all those things? So one of the roles that the National Labs play in PNNL is really in providing tools. You know, we won't be the ones that operate the grid. We won't be the ones that control it. But everything from intermittent generation based on renewables, that's a need for better types of control. Battery design for better batteries and energy storage for their intermittent generation. So those are areas where we can build tools and capabilities that we can then partner with our regional utilities and otherwise to support and distribute those. And do you think it's possible maybe that, I mean, utilities have really good data on demand by the hour and demand by the minute, and so they can tailor their operations to what they know is going to happen, like a heat wave is coming or something. Can AI, do you think, enhance that, make it more fine-grained, especially, as you say, with intermittent generation, which is a nice way of saying it. the sun doesn't always shine and you don't want things to happen to blackout because we love solar energy? Absolutely. So kind of taking a step back and looking at what the needs are in artificial intelligence right now, you know, we do have a need to do sub-meter resolution forecasting for weather. And today, that is such a challenge to do that with our current methods. We do a decent job, but I believe that the new class of AI that's coming online, you know, the frontier AI that, you know, we see commercial gains from it, you know, with ChatGPT, you have to say that, Uh, but what does it mean for the sciences and for energy is equally compelling. You know, it's Andrew Ng in 2017 said AI is the new electricity because it's going to touch everything that we do. And I do believe it's going to help us, you know, at the large scale, you know, where we do need tens of thousands of GPUs to train a model. That is the place where DOE traditionally has excelled with the exascale computing program and so forth. We're speaking with Dr. Court Corley. He is the chief scientist for artificial intelligence in the AI and data analytics division at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. And you bring up a good point in trying to understand energy issues. AI consumes tons of energy. There's even published pieces on how much energy it could consume, almost like Bitcoin mining. We need data fields and so forth for this. And you've been following AI for a long time. What is the future of AI to maybe solve its own energy consumption needs? Is that even something people are thinking about? So I think there's you know, a couple of different solutions that we have to address as a nation. One, the energy consumption is astounding. Renewables and clean energy is the way to go about that. And I think the investment of the nation of, you know, if we set a goal, let's say we set a goal of achieving clean energy by 2035, how are we going to do that? Well, we need to focus on things like energy efficient electricity. I mean, energy efficient GPUs, energy efficient AI training, energy efficient methods. And even in the past six months, there's been advances in the AI research that shows you can have exceptional gains by building smaller models that are still just as worthwhile, but they're domain specific. And so perhaps there's a way that we can develop maybe more energy efficient methods that are going to help us in the long run reduce energy consumption. Because right now, yes, you are correct that the energy needs are quite astounding for these large systems. 
And have you found, too, that you don't necessarily need limitless data sets for every application, but maybe you get better training with more limited data sets and therefore less consumption? Absolutely. So there's one approach in the realm of scientific machine learning where we really constrain the models by the known laws of physics. You know, we say these are the laws of conservation. And by incorporating those into uh, the models themselves, absolutely, we need less data. We need less compute. They become more understandable, which is really what we need for something that is so critical in a high-consequence system, something that is going to behave in a way that is safe and secure and reliable. And by adding in physics, that's one way that we can do that to reduce the complexity within the system. And are there models, too, going to the large end of things where you would bring econometrics into energy modeling? For example, we could have clean energy tonight, except the economy would collapse and everyone would starve to death. So we don't want that either because every gallon of gas, every cubic meter of natural gas that's consumed is someone pursuing their life's goals and their occupation. And so is that something people are looking at is to have some kind of grand design so we could get better answers on how all of this can work? So it is a a tough challenge. And for myself and our organization, we don't have uh, economists necessarily on staff, but those are really critical questions that the nation is going to have to answer. One of the ways that we get around that, though, is through partnerships. You know, as a national lab, we love our our partnerships and rely on them to build complementary expertise and the things that we work on. One of the efforts we work on is with the other Office of Science and other uh, national labs. For example, there's a new consortium called the Trillion Parameter Consortium that Argonne National Labs launched with Oak Ridge. And I think now there's 100 different joinees on it. And it's really about building models for science and energy um, in a way that are going to support the nation. And in those settings, I imagine because there's university partners, there's other entities involved, that absolutely those types of considerations would be able to be considered. Because from the PNNL standpoint, there are many domains, really, that go into energy. You mentioned batteries. Well, that's physics and chemistry and the grid. Yeah, and materials. So really, if you break down any of these domains, nothing is existing by itself. Absolutely. And one of the benefits of being at PNNL is we have amazing chemists and physicists and electrical engineers and computer scientists. And you know, we're able to bring all of these individuals together in a way that is compelling to address a lot of these grand challenges. And where we don't, we partner and we work with universities and other institutions as well. And just getting back to the Center for AI there at the PNNL, who populates it? Are you drawing in people that were in other areas of PNNL doing AI or bringing in new people? What are some of the functions Sure. So the functions itself, absolutely, it's meant to be both a benefit to the outside and have a a way for folks to see what we're doing in AI, but also internally, we do have members from across our different, what we call directorates, but that's the way we're organized. Today, there's roughly one-fifth of our scientists and engineers that are using machine learning in their work or artificial intelligence. And so all of these folks are associated with the center, and by doing so, they get access to resources, They get access to our own internal infrastructure. We also partner with hyperscalers and other organizations to be able to provide the infrastructure that's needed to do machine learning, et cetera. In addition to that, we're really all about workforce development and mentoring and bringing up the next cadre of workforce to really continue to grow the number of folks that are engaged in the application or the development of new AI that's going to really drive our science, energy, and security forward. 
And as someone who has degrees and PhDs in artificial intelligence, it's not a new field, but do you personally get the sense that suddenly the world has caught up to you and now this is the real deal? So I am super excited. I used machine learning in my PhD dissertation. It wasn't very good, but it did the job uh, and it continues to only get better. Now we have methods that scale to infinite amounts of data and you know we do need better methods that are more efficient, but... I do believe there's a fundamental change in how we go about doing things, yet there is still more work to be done. You know, I will say that while we've seen decent success with specific applications like in chat, there really does need to be more research and investment into understanding how can we use these things for understanding biological function, for understanding materials, so that we can have more robust compounds for you know, space missions, so to say. You know, there's really all kinds of applications for these areas that are really important. And I do believe that machine learning and AI today is going to get us a lot further, but there's still a lot more work to be done. By no means is it a one-size-fits-all tool. You know, and as anybody that's used any of the open tools will tell you, like, they still make errors. You know, there's a lot of concern about making sure it's safe, secure, trustworthy, that we develop these methods ethically. Well, to infinity and beyond, Dr. Court Corley is chief scientist for artificial intelligence in the AI and data analytics division of the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress is laboring to keep that budget deal alive. But first, will the new defense industrial strategy actually produce results? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The latest must-read issued by the Pentagon last week is the first-ever National Defense Industrial Strategy. It acknowledges that America's manufacturing might isn't what it used to be and that it's not really up to the task of supporting great powers competition. We get one reaction now from the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, Jerry McGinn. Jerry, good to have you back. Great to be back with you, Tom. And in your tour of duty at the Pentagon, the industrial base was your area of specialization, fair? That's correct. That's correct. So you've been looking at this for a long time, and we've had other manufacturing and dib discussions before. Mm -hmm. Is this strategy just a admiring restatement of the problem, or is there some innovation in here? You know, I think there's a benefit in kind of um, this is the first of its kind to really kind of pull together all the threads of effort on the national of the industrial base and develop a strategy. A lot of like you said, a lot of things have been done previously, including when I was in government. And the, the one of the things I like about this strategy is it recognizes that it recognizes that, you know, these have been long term challenges that have developed over time and that it's going to take time to address it. And that we've gone after it in a number of different ways. And I also like our particularly like in this strategy that it recognizes the need for flexible acquisition, um, which um, I think is the most kind of fruitful thread for uh, implementation. And then finally, I really like the fact that it, it recognizes the importance of allies and partners. It talks about that um, and um, how allies and partners fit within the overall industrial base, which is uh, really good to see. Right. I saw a story recently about a certain platform and a missile launching system that's made, I think, in Finland. Mm-hmm. And it takes a couple of years to put one of these together, and they're mm-hmm. not in enough supply now, and they can't ramp up a thing that takes two years to make real quickly. Mm -hmm. But yes, we do rely on 
European mostly suppliers mm-hmm. as much as U.S. That's right, and a lot of like either subcomponents or you know they a lot of those U.S. subsidiaries of foreign-owned companies. Prime you know, systems like the Navy frigate, the uh, the the Bradley fighting vehicle. I mean, these are made in the U.S., but they're you know primed by non-U.S. companies technically. And the strategy does mention a lot of issues, including instability of procurement, mm-hmm. non-competitive practices, yep. fragility of sub-tier suppliers. Mm-hmm. An economy produces what's in demand. Right. And for those things where there is a mixed economic need, say castings and forgings, I think are mentioning in there, we mm-hmm. used to have a lot more foundries in the United right. States. Is that because a lot of the commercial demand has been going overseas for so long for metal parts. Yeah, so, I mean, there's sort of, you know, given that the way the defense market is, it's a monopsony. You have, you have you know, one customer, essentially, or a series of customers. And so, and the demand, you know, when you drop GDP, of the dependence of GDP for defense from five and a half to three from the Cold War to today, so a lot of the business for these things goes away. And then there's a lot of co- commercial items or kind of lower tier items that there's, that it is building the demand for those is in keeping those on shore is tough. And so there's been a lot of investment in that area, particularly in the last you know half decade plus um, to try to rebuild kind of rare earth processing capacity for castings and forgings. And a lot of money has already got into that. And this the strategy talks about that, which is great. But there's a lot the, the more recently with response to Ukraine, you know, the, as you mentioned, the kind of the inability to produce things faster, that that's where a lot of focus is going. And that's a big focus, as missed the strategy sets, is they increase the speed and scale of production. And that's where I think a lot can be done uh, going forward. Yes, to increase the speed and scale of production, though, takes multiple suppliers for the most part. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is what I've kind of said and written about recently is that you can, I think there's a lot the department can do to change um, behaviors in that way. It can do things like second sourcing. It can do, if possible, do dual awards of, of, of contracts to providers so that you have more supply, more kind of hot lines of producers. And you see that with the recent award on um, 155 munitions. They awarded nine companies. Two of them are non-U.S. companies. Companies. Um, so you're building more capacity, and that's one way that you can create more competition. But the challenge is, is if the demand's not there, it's much harder to do that. Right, and the report talks about that. Yep, exactly. We're speaking with Jerry McGinn. He's executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. And one of the points they make is there is limited visibility into international ally and partner requirements. That was a surprising finding. Yeah, I think what they're talking about there is, you know, the the foreign military sales system, which is a government to government system. You know, it's it's very opaque, and there's a lot of kind of politics, you know, that's in, involved in it in terms of congressional notification and so on. So it's really hard to get a handle on what government, uh, foreign government needs are, you know, um, in advance. So it's it, getting more kind of. Um, signaling that um, is 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 one of the priorities uh, that's been identified. And a lot of what they say are actions, they have an action plan for each of these different areas. And I'm just looking at the one under resilient supply chains, incentivize industry, 
manage inventory, and expand support for domestic, diversify, leverage data analytics. These are all kind of boilerplate prescriptions. This doesn't sound like there's a definite, it's a strategy, but it doesn't seem like a playbook yet. That's, that's a fair point. The question is now, okay, what does this lead to, right? Does it lead to changes in acquisition practices that help to buy more analytics? You know, is there investment that's backing up these uh, these actions? That's only going to be visible when the FY25 budget request comes out in terms of investment and any kind of any specific policy or acquisition regulatory changes to address some of the actions there. And we've talked about this before, and this also talks about the regularity of demand signals to industry. So Mm -hmm. industry is incentivized to make the production investments it needs because it knows it has a steady demand. Right rotating inventories and so forth. Right. And that's, that's the key. Is And this is where the, the government has a power as the monopsonist um, that they can better exploit. Because getting demand, industry is only going to invest if they are specifically incentivized to do so through a contract action. Because there's no, um, there's no incentive in the market today for them to have excess capacity. They'll get killed by their shareholders for it. So, so we have to think about how do you do that as the government buys and that, that could be th- things like doing creating surge cleans where the government pays a little bit more to have industry plan for building out excess capacity if the government tells them. So that way there's a bit more like several hundred thousand dollars for the planning, but you may be able to surge if needed in six months versus 18. So there are actions the government can take that can help create more of an incentive structure. And there's also some fine-grained tuning that would need to be done to these types of efforts because if you're turning out the ordinance, that's one thing. But the platform to launch the ordinance, that's another thing. Right. No, that's fair. And one of the things that I've seen in what's going on with the Replicator initiative that Kath Hicks, the deputy secretary, is leading. This is the drone swarm idea. And another program the Air Force is doing, they're looking to do simpler designs, you know, more commercially available systems, things that you can – so you don't have to build exquisitely capable systems that take long, have to be tested a lot more fine. So so they're trying to help short circuit kind of the um, production timeline by doing that. You don't do that with everything, right? But, you know, and so it's good to see kind of the department taking that approach. And I think there's, you know, more of that is, I think, coming down the pike. Yeah, if you're building a multiple missile simultaneous interceptor system, mm-hmm. you can't really simplify that. Right, right, but right. Maybe if you're making a shell, I don't know, there's some components you could value analyze out of it and turn right. five pieces into one casting or something. Yeah, or you could you could make a, frankly, you can simplify the production of the basic PGMs, you know, precision guided munitions, right? So you don't have to just hand make them essentially like the Javelin and so on in ways. And, and that's one of the things like the Air Force is investing in. So more of that will be important, particularly where you need things you need to scale. Yeah, there was an $80,000 television set at the Consumer Electronics Show, but probably in two years it'll be at Costco for, for, for 1500 Exactly. That's kind yeah. of the idea they need yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Very, very fair. So your general assessment, tell me if you agree with this, underlying this is a department that's worried. They mentioned being able to keep up with the pacing challenge. Yeah. That's something you need to keep up with. Yeah. No, the department is is very clearly worried. And one of the things that 
The uh, principal author of this was uh, Laura Taylor Calais, who's the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Base Policy. One of the things she said yesterday at her rollout event was that, you know, the good thing about this, this is a very much a bipartisan effort. These are things that I saw when I was in government on both sides of the aisle. You know, there's a strong recognition that it's one of the few areas where we have bipartisan consensus that we are upside down in, in a lot of areas with respect to Chinese threats, and we have to address that. This is a very strong call to action, and uh, I welcome that. And I look forward to kind of working on the implementation because I think implementation is the key. I mean, money is part of it. You know, the more that invest, but a lot of that's out of control of the department. They can propose, but then Congress disposes. But how they buy, you know, the uh, practices they use to design, budget, produce, and contract for these systems are ways that we can speed up the process and get more things to the warfighter. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. As always, thanks so much. Uh, great to be with you, Tom. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the Dib Report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, Congress labors to keep that budget deal alive. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The continuing resolution funding the government runs out Friday night at midnight. So far, the spending limits Republicans and Democrats agreed to a week or so ago has not translated into bills yet for full 2024 appropriations, which means neither a long-term continuing resolution again nor a shutdown are actually off the table. We get the latest now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And what is it looking like exactly? Right now, things are looking better, but things were not looking good heading into the weekend. But during the weekend, things changed. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announcing plans for this new two-step short-term spending agreement. It would go beyond this Friday's deadline and a February 2nd deadline and extend spending through March 1st and March 8th, the State of the Union address is March 7th. First deadline would be for a partial government shutdown as the current one is now with spending for four appropriations bills. The Senate today plans to take a procedural vote to set things in motion. This continuing resolution is expected to get through the Senate and then there will be a House vote, which, as usual, will include some drama. Conservatives have already made it clear they don't want another short-term spending bill and they're going to vote against it. Speaker Johnson is again going to need the help of Democrats to get this legislation passed, as he did the last time. Also, to avoid a partial government shutdown, two-thirds of the House will need to approve this, but I think it will get done since lawmakers have little choice. Well, if they agreed on a top-line number, why can't they get to a spending bill? I think for a couple of reasons. One, that House Speaker Mike Johnson is new in this position and still trying to get his footing. And secondly, the outsized influence of the House Freedom Caucus. Since the Republican majority is so small, Johnson has, like former Speaker Kevin McCarthy before him, tried to listen to all members of this unwieldy GOP conference. So last week he met with various Republican groups, including hardline conservatives, who he's been close to 
to before becoming speaker, they essentially said, you haven't been tough enough with the Senate on issues like the southern border and pushing for deeper spending cuts. And after their meeting last week, some thought they had caused the speaker to open up the possibility of reopening negotiations on that top line budget number. But he later indicated he was just keeping an open mind and also met with more moderate members of the conference. Most Republicans fully understand that there's no way to quickly pass 12 appropriations bills. And I believe the thinking here is no matter what Johnson does, the House Freedom Caucus is going to be unhappy with him. So he's going to again rely on Democrats, as I mentioned, to avoid a shutdown, while at the same time looking over his shoulder, hoping no conservative makes a motion to vacate the chair, as they did with Kevin McCarthy, who went from being Speaker of the House to no longer being in Congress. You know, and if they remove Johnson and then he leaves the Congress, I mean, the Republican majority is slipping away like sands through an hourglass here. (laughs) It really is. I mean, right now we're down to a two-vote majority, in part because the former House Speaker, who would have thought that, actually left Congress. And then you had George Santos being kicked out of Congress. So you start losing more, and there are retirements on the way as well. They literally are down to, as you say, the sands in the hourglass, one or two or even no votes if if things continue to move the way they are. And you spoke to some of the lawmakers in the Senate and the House on the Democratic side, and they're kind of scratching their heads, sounds like. Right. Well, for one thing, related to the deal on the top line, former House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, Maryland congressman, he's been through a lot of these. He said, when you reach a deal, you want to have a deal. You don't want to have to keep renegotiating deal after deal after deal. So he's concerned about it. Uh, I talked to Senator Mark Warner and Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia. Both are once again very concerned about the impact this is going to have because it raises all the uncertainty for federal workers, not to mention contractors with the federal government. They said that they're feeling like it's a bad movie all over again. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent. And Tell us more about what has been happening with the IRS. They got not appropriated money from the regular spending, but they got this $80 billion ostensibly over 10 years. But that $60 billion is shrinking, even though it didn't come from appropriation, normal appropriations. It came from the, I think it was the infrastructure bill. Right. That was also part of this top line agreement where uh, Democrats wanted to basically throw a bone to the House Speaker and said, OK, you can cut away $20 billion to the IRS, but they still have 60 billion dollars that they're now pouring into improving infrastructure within the agency, as well as IT. And one positive note that came out for the IRS was the report from the National Taxpayer Advocate in the letter to Congress last week, basically saying that things, while they are not quite exactly back to normal, remember we talked a lot about those backlogs with the IRS and tax forms and people not being able to get through on the phone and get assistance. A lot of improvement in that area, not to say that it's all perfect, obviously. But that report indicated a lot of optimism that that this is really starting to turn around. And the supporters of the funding, many of them Democrats, say that this is really going to help ultimately over the long haul, allowing taxpayers to get the assistance they need. Of course, on the other side, a lot of Republicans say this is terrible because it's going to come down harder on people that don't make a ton of money. And there's been a lot of uh, hyperbole, frankly, about what tax agents are going to do. But nonetheless, I think that big aircraft carrier that is the IRS agency is slightly starting to turn around now. All right. And, you know, we had the incident of the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, being a little, not quite AWOL, but disappeared for a few days. Now we understand 
you know, that from published reports that he's directing the bombing of the Houthis from his hospital <laughs> bed. What a great country, huh? So any reaction on Hill or any action likely to be taken? Because even some Democrats were saying, mm, this doesn't look so good. Right. That was one of the things that Senator Tim Kaine said he had some issues with. Uh, he's a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. He doesn't think that necessarily, as some people said, that maybe the defense secretary should resign. But clearly, I think there is a push among lawmakers to clarify what happens when you have, admittedly, maybe a rare incidence like this. I mean, it's certainly something that got a lot of attention, especially when we learned that he has a form of cancer. But uh, a lot of people also don't want to come down too hard on him. Uh, there was a lot of things, as you know, that happened at that time. You had another person who was very high ranking, who was out sick. But really, when you're talking about matters of war, as you just mentioned, you have to have a clear line of where things are going if somebody is out. And that's where I think the lawmakers are really going to make a push. And I wonder if underlying that concern is the is the slight drone of the fact that his condition might be more serious than even we know now, because a prostatectomy, that's pretty radical, because most men that have a prostate problem, even cancer, there are much less radical ways of dealing with it. And right. And so I think that he was hopeful, as many people would be in, in a health situation like that, that it could be taken care of fairly quickly. I have heard medical experts say that clearly that there were complications. And I think that also contributed to the uncertainty that maybe he was thinking, OK, I can get this done fairly quickly and move on. And as we know, with health, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I think that uncertainty is what makes a lot of people nervous on Capitol Hill. All right. So what's going to happen this week then? There's more Hunter Biden stuff, maybe, <laughs> in, in the budget. Well, there's going to be a lot of surprises, maybe not on the level of Hunter Biden. That was quite an incident last week. But I, I think we're going to just get into that crunch time again over the next few days. You know, we're coming off a holiday. And as we talked about this at the end of last year, there wasn't going to be enough time to get to all of these bills. And I think they have no choice, really, but to go for a continuing resolution. I think the real question will be, how long is it going to be? Right. And if it goes for the rest of the fiscal year, then sequestration occurs. So that might please the more conservative end of the Republicans because it brings cuts automatically. Right. And that was the whole idea behind the debt ceiling agreement. On the other hand, a lot of people say they don't want a long-term agreement, talking about the military, because if you lock in those figures, they say that's effectively a cut for the Pentagon. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. And good to have you in studio in person today. Nice to be here. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Four years after the Pentagon's massive household goods moving contract went out for bid, things are still in limbo. The latest challenge has to do with IT integration problems between DOD and its prime vendor. But once those are worked out, the department faces an even bigger problem. It might not have any movers to do the work. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has been talking with moving industry officials about the transition to the new Global Household Goods Contract, GHC. He writes about it in the Federal Report this week and joins me now. And Jared, this has been a difficult contract to get underway. They're in the systems integration contract, but that's not the only issue. Yeah, this thing has just been dogged by problems, Tom, over and over again. The, the latest issues that we talked about a few weeks ago are 
U.S. Transportation Command and HomeSafe, the prime contractor in this, are running into some IT integration issues. Really, two different new systems had to be built to make this all work, one on the contractor side, one on the DOD side. Marrying those two up apparently has not been easy. They are in the middle of some final testing this week, maybe done by the end of the week, and we should find out how that's going. Meanwhile, much bigger issue that's just really now coming to the surface is we really are looking like we're going to have very low participation in this contract among the moving companies that are currently providing services to DOD under the traditional legacy system, which is called DP3. A couple of reasons for that. The companies that I've talked to, and I've talked to several at this point, say that really no one in the industry is willing to participate for two large reasons. One is the rates that HomeSafe is going to be paying are much lower than what they're receiving right now, and in fact, much lower than what they were receiving back in 2019, pre-pandemic times before costs started going up. And then to make things more complicated, this new contract, the Global Household Goods contract, is a service contract, unlike the previous system. And like with all of other service contracts in the government, it's accompanied by the Surface Service Contract Act, which means that you need to pay prevailing wages, which are set by the Labor Department for whatever market you're working in. That's an entirely new system for all of these moving companies. They say the combination of these two things would make pretty much every move that they did under the system unprofitable. It's not that they don't want to do the work. It's that they can't, they say, because they would lose money. They have then pressure from both sides, the low rates under the new deal, which is yet to be implemented, and then prevailing wages is just kind of code for union wages, and many of them might be non-union shops to start with. Yeah, and it's not the amounts that they really they really stress here. It's it's the complexity of implementing a system like that. Because think about who the who the actual employees are in the moving industry. You have some people who are like warehouse workers who are already paid on an hourly basis. Be fairly easy to implement something like the service Con- service contract act for folks like that. The issue gets into when you talk about drivers and packers because. Uh, an hourly wage is fundamentally at odds with how the rest of the moving industry works. They are actually <laughs> movers, not just in DOD, but across the country are, are exempt from a lot of wage rules, including in the government contracting space, the Service Contract Act, because they're covered by tariffs. They're specifically exempted um, because they're in that tariff system. And, and, and the way it works is essentially they have published rates that say, here's how much we're going to charge a customer to go from point A to point B during this time of year for how many pounds. And, uh, you know, they charge that rate to the, to, the, to the customer and the driver makes a percentage of that. Then the packers make a percentage of that. So switching that over to an hourly wage that is set per locality is an entirely different system. And they say it's probably impossible for them, them to implement because let's say you have a DOD shipment on your truck, a military family shipment on your truck. Then on the way out to deliver that shipment, you pick out pick up another family shipment that happens to not be a government shipment. You're probably going to end up having to pay under both systems. In, in other words, the company would have to pay the driver an hourly wage in addition to the tariff wage because now that moving company is operating in two completely different payment systems. It's a very strange situation. Yeah. Is there a path to resolving it? It seems like you have conflicting, basically, laws under which both sides feel they should operate. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, this whole Service Contract Act issue came as a bit of a surprise to the movers. Technically, there's no reason it should have because it was specified back in 2019 when the original request for proposals first went out. But important to remember, a lot of these folks, really none of these folks, are government contracting experts. Although they do a lot of government business, it's been under completely different terms in this tariff system. So this really comes down to working things out between 
these moving companies and HomeSafe, which is going to be the prime contractor under GHC. That's the biggest change in this system is that there's now one company that's going to be overseeing all military moves, and then all of the actual movers are subcontractors in that service contract, largest service contract in the government's history under GHC. So it's really between the prime and all the subcontractors at this point. There's relatively little that U.S. Transportation Command can do at this point. Really, the only possible outcome here is either Transcom, or I'm sorry, uh, HomeSafe, rather, increases its rates to a level where these companies feel like they can, um, where they can actually turn a profit, or this contract doesn't get fully implemented. A lot of the work still stays in the legacy system. I think we just don't know enough yet about implementation to see how that's going to shake out, Tom. And what is the timeline here? When is the global household goods contract supposed to be in place? And is there a way that Transcom can extend the legacy contract if they have to? I, I don't think there's really any reason they would need to cancel the, the legacy contract at any at any point certain. The new GHC contract was supposed to have been implemented already. The idea was to have it up and running in time for peak season last year. That obviously didn't happen. The, the, the main reason they've given is because of these IT integration issues. It's unlikely to happen by peak season this year. They've already said just because of those same IT issues, what they're going to start doing uh, on the front end as soon as they get some of that worked out is some of these um, short distance, local, simple moves and see if they can make some of those work under the new system to start working out some of the bugs. And is there a danger that some of the subcontractors could say, you know what, this doesn't look like it's going anywhere and just duck out of it. And then when the GHC does take place, then there will be simply less competition for task orders. Yeah, what I've been hearing from movers is that a lot of them are already having to do that. The, the industry is a little bit interesting. DOD only makes up about 20% of the total household goods moving market in the U.S., but there are certain companies that are very military heavy that have made very intentional decisions to put a lot of their uh, interest and effort into that military moving market. So you have some companies where it makes up half of their work, 70% of their work, and those companies right now, I'm told, are doing everything they can to figure out how to diversify their customer base so they can move more of their business back out into the normal tariff system that they've become accustomed to because they just don't think they can make money off of most of these DOD moves. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 